Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. On the show this week, Fukushima update. In the last couple of days, the concerns have moved from the radiation that was leaking from the spent fuel pools and into the air to radiation that is now leaking into the water. Germany's shifting stance on nuclear. The worries about nuclear power really do dominate, and I think Merkel has also clearly seen that. And as inelegant as her pirouettes on the policy front are, I think she really does see that any kind of pro-nuclear policy in Germany is essentially poisoned. OPEC cashes in on rising oil prices. The money that OPEC countries are going to make in 2011 is going to be higher than the money they made selling oil during the first and the second oil crisis in the 70s. So it is a staggering amount of money. And your comments. The other line of discussion we've had is along the lines of renewable subsidies. Last week's Q&A session was with Francesco Storacci, the chief executive of NL Green Power, and he said something surprising, which was that the constant revision of solar subsidies is actually a sign of strength in the industry and it doesn't bother him at all. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show with an update on the nuclear crisis at Fukushima, what the future holds for TEPCO, the utility that owns the reactors, and the outlook for nuclear power in Japan. Prior to the crisis, Japan had planned to boost the percentage share that nuclear contributes to the country's power generation from 30% to 40% by 2030. Now on the line from Japan is Jonathan Sobel, the FT's Tokyo correspondent. What's the latest from the Fukushima plant in Japan? In the last couple of days, the concerns have moved from the radiation that was leaking from the spent fuel pools and into the air to radiation that is now leaking into the water. There are tunnels outside the main containment area of the plant that are filled with very radioactive water. And now there are new readings showing that radiation has leaked into the sea. We had a measurement of more than 3,000 times normal for radioactive iodine and 500 times for another particle, cesium. So these are serious concerns both for people working at the plant and for, for example, the fishing industry in the area. What's coming out from TEPCO, the company that runs the plant? I was looking yesterday, I think their shares were hit by fears that it might be nationalized by the government on the back of the, the accident. That's right. They've been down 17 to 18% each day for the last few days. They've just closed 18% lower today. We've already reported they've secured 2 trillion yen in emergency lending from their banks, but their cleanup costs are going to be huge. The issue really is how much support they're going to have from the government. Their credit ratings have been downgraded since the crisis, but they are still fairly high uh, among global utilities. But a lot of that depends on the assumed political support they have from the state. So ultimately, these questions of nationalization are going to be decided by politicians and, and of course, the national mood on TEPCO and on nuclear power generally. What's the mood like on the street? First of all, in terms of fears of radiation, I mean, we keep reading about bottled water selling out in Tokyo because of the fears of radiation. And then sort of secondly, are there people demonstrating about nuclear power in Japan, which obviously is a big source of power for the country? 
Well, one thing we haven't seen, which uh, you know people may find surprising, are large-scale demonstrations. I, I think uh, some of that may be simply because the, the country is in a, a bigger emergency now. There's a feeling that efforts have to be focused on, first of all, for Fukushima, actually you know, fixing the emergency, and then, of course, uh, helping the people of the northeastern region generally. So perhaps the time for larger social discussion and perhaps protests hasn't yet come here. Certainly there is a lot of concern. I was just visiting uh, another nuclear plant south of Tokyo, which sits on an earthquake fault line and for years has been considered uh, the most vulnerable, actually, to earthquakes and tsunamis in the country. I spoke to some people down there who were concerned. There's a court case that has been going for several years to try and close that plant for alleged dangers and vulnerabilities to earthquakes. The people who are uh, leading that lawsuit feel like the Fukushima case is going to uh, is going to propel their case. Certainly, uh, you know, the, the country as a whole is going to be taking a new look at nuclear power, which uh, provides about 30% of its energy. What are people sort of saying, just whether they can, can Japan actually afford to say no to, to new nuclear power? I mean, were they due to be building lots of new reactors, or were they just, just using the old ones? There are several reactors plans in place, uh, which have been delayed or put on hold. The plant I visited today was supposed to start building a new reactor in a couple of years. That's been put off by one year pending a review. There are several other utilities in Japan that have put off restarting reactors that had been closed temporarily for inspections. So certainly the political climate is not right. As time passes and perhaps you know once the uh, emergency at Fukushima is resolved, a more calculated look will have to be taken because, of course, 30% is a lot to make up. And I, so far, no one has talked about shutting all the reactors in Japan, for example, but just because the costs would be high. And you know there are already blackouts in the Tokyo area, which people aren't happy about either. So there is a, a balancing act that's going to have to uh, be performed in the future. Just on the blackouts, is that affecting business in Tokyo as well? As well? I mean, so far, they've targeted the suburban areas around the central part of the metropolis simply because they're less populated. There's less chance of, for example, traffic accidents when the traffic signals go out. So central Tokyo has been spared so far. And uh, people have been, businesses and homes have been cutting back on electricity use. In fact, today they announce a fairly large swath of suburban Tokyo that will potentially be subject to blackouts, but usually the actual blackouts are smaller simply because people are saving energy. That doesn't mean it's not a problem, particularly for businesses, industrial businesses, particularly semiconductors, for example. These are processes inside those factories that need a constant stream of power. So even if you only turn off the power for a couple of hours, it can ruin a whole day's or in some, some cases several days' works. Thanks very much. Keeping with nuclear, let's move to Germany and the news this week that the country's governing coalition has signalled a move away from atomic energy after its pro-nuclear policies were rejected by voters earlier this week. To explain exactly what's been going on, we have Gerrit Wiesmann, the FD's Berlin correspondent, on the line. Just wondered your reading of the situation. Is, is that Angela Merkel, the Chancellor, displaying to her domestic audience very much or is there really a real shift going on in the country's energy policy? I think to begin with, there was the suspicion that this was just window dressing ahead of a very important regional election. But having crashed in that election, I think we're beginning to get a sense that she and also her colleagues in government see that they can't really carry on with 
their pro-nuclear policy. So now we're beginning to hear sounds that these seven plants that have been idled at the moment while the government conducts a security review should actually not be allowed back on stream in three months' time. So the big question is now, you know, of these seven plants, how many do we close? And some people are saying it'll be seven. The power companies are kind of thinking it might only be two. But I think we're going to move to a situation where the government seriously tries, and the important point is here, tries to close down seven of the 17 plants we have here. And and what are the utilities saying about it? Because I think, are, are they looking at legal action against the move? Indeed, yeah. I mean, the utilities, of course, they did their round of interviews in the week that followed, but they then also quite deliberately kept Sturm in the run-up to this regional election because they didn't want to inflame the already fierce debate. At the moment, they're cranking it up again. The PR machine is being set in motion, and they do want to hopefully quite rationally explain why they think their plants are safe and why Germany needs nuclear power as a power source. Their second line of defense or attack, depending on where you stand, is via the courts, and their Uh, The companies have already clearly signaled that they're both going to challenge this three-month moratorium that the government announced and also a nuclear fuel rod tax that was introduced this year to help the government consolidate the budget. Angela Merkel obviously was at last year. She announced an extension to the life of many of these plants. Is is there any sign of of her going back on that decision? What's she been saying? If some of these seven idle plants were to be closed, this would in effect be Merkel going back on the decision. I mean, the decision at the end of last year was to allow the 17 plants to operate on average an extra 12 years, which pushed the final phase out of nuclear power in Germany from 2022 to 2036. If the government now says, well, actually, you know, we've changed our minds and we want to close seven immediately or as soon as possible, that to me then really changes the the balance of the deal that was struck with the nuclear companies. And really, at that point, the government should sit down again with the nuclear companies, which then also means that the nuclear companies would be able to renegotiate the windfall profits or the share of the windfall profit that they have to give to the government. I mean, over the next 25 years, it's something like 30 billion euros. And just in terms of the sort of public, Germany as as a country is is famously anti-nuclear. Presumably that's just gotten even stronger, those feelings. Yes, society was just split. I mean, I think there was a real 50-50 split or maybe a slight majority for the anti-nuclears. I think now the worries about nuclear power really do dominate. And I think Merkel has also clearly seen that. And as inelegant as her pirouettes on the policy front are, I think she really does see that any kind of pro-nuclear policy in Germany is essentially poisoned, which is a huge problem for business, of course, because they want to get cheap electricity to make all of these cars, to keep all of these Germans in work, which is, of course, another side of the discussion that we're going to get in the coming months. But I do think that Merkel and the two ruling parties of her coalition have really seen that they can't continue as before. It sounds like an interesting few months ahead of you, and and thanks very much for joining us. Now let's move on now to oil and the news that OPEC is looking likely to make huge cash returns on the recent high oil prices. Estimates from the International Energy Agency are that export revenues will reach $1 trillion for the very first time. Javi Blas, the FT's commodities editor, joins me now. How significant is this $1 trillion potential windfall for OPEC? 
It is very significant because OPEC countries are going to need all of that money, $1 trillion in net oil revenues from selling their crude oil. This is coming on the back of high production. You have to take into account not only what we consider the crude oil production, but on top of that, we have condensates and NGL, natural gas liquids, that they increase significantly the production of OPEC countries. And then we have a very high price. I mean, we are not at record prices. We hit $147 in 2008. But when you look at the average price of the the year 2008 was just under $100, was $97. And this year, if we continue at current prices, we can see an average for the year above $100. So it is very significant. It's the first time it happened. And even taking in account all the inflation accumulated since the 70s, the money that OPEC countries are going to make in 2011 is going to be higher than the money they made selling oil during the first and the second oil crisis in the 70s. So it is a staggering amount of money. Obviously, a lot of these um, countries have been using the money to hand out to their citizens, partly, I guess, as a way of trying to sort of stem any potential for unrest. I mean, what, what, what was Saudi doing? You, you talking to the, to the analysts will say in a cynical way that they are buying, actually buying population support. Saudi Arabia is spending $129 billion over the next several years. We don't know exactly how much they are going to spend this year, but economists are telling us that around $35 billion are going to be expended actually in 2011, this extra spending that equals to more than half what Saudi Arabia made last year selling his oil is going to go to a wide range of programs from a big increase in salaries, more jobs on the public sector, money to the religious police, a promise for half a million houses, a subsidized prices for the, the poor population, booming population in Saudi Arabia. And obviously Saudi is not alone. Other countries in the Gulf are doing very much the same. You have Kuwait, who a few weeks ago announced a bonus, a one-off bonus of $4,000 to every citizen and also free food, so rice, cooking oil, and so on, for 13 months, more than a year of free food. So altogether, it's a, it's a massive increase on budgetary needs for these countries. The flip side on this, is it's not all good news for these countries. I mean, the IA yesterday was also talking about the, the fears of investment or capital flows into the countries, given the unrest. Um, certainly in Libya, we know all the Western oil companies have pulled out their staff. Uh, there is no actual sort of drilling or exploration going on. Um, how worried should we be about that in the longer term? Well, we, we should be because these programs are having two main implications from the oil market. First of all, if you are spending on giving money to your population and, you know, all good if you are building hospitals and schools, but all the money that is not invested on the oil sector means that in the future maybe there is no enough investment in state-owned oil companies for increasing production. So that's the, the first worry, the more a long-term worry. But the most important one is places from Washington and New York to here in London to Riyadh and, and Dubai are telling us that Saudi Arabia, with all this extra spending, is going to require this year around $80 a barrel for balancing his budget. Obviously, it seems that prices are higher, but this price is very high. I mean, about 10 years ago, Saudi Arabia could balance his budget at around $25. So the increase in spending and the increase how high the oil revenues need to go, it's extremely dramatic. And it means also that 
Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries are joining the league of the price hawks of Venezuela and Iran that they obviously they need very high prices to sustain their regimes. As an economist who wanted to remain anonymous, but you know, uh, I think a very well respected economist in, in, in Dubai was telling me the high oil prices have never been so important to these countries. At the end of the day, they need the money because the money is buying them time to survive as regimes. Thanks very much. And finally, Kieran Stacey, the editor of our blog Energy Source, joins us. So, Kieran, what's been going on in terms of the discussions online? Um, well, we've had two themes really this week, apart from the ongoing trouble in Libya and Japan. Um, now, our reader's been talking about two things. The first is the fallout still from the budget, and I think still people digesting the news of the additional taxes on North Sea oil and gas. And we had Statoil's decision yesterday to suspend £10 million uh, worth of, of projects up there. So I think our readers are saying, well, this vindicates exactly what we were saying all along. This move is the wrong move, and it was too sudden. The industry hasn't had time to react. The other line of discussion we've had is along uh, the lines of renewable subsidies. We had last week's uh, Q&A session with, with, was with Francesco Storacci, the chief executive of NL Green Power, and he said something surprising, which was that the constant revision of solar subsidies is actually a sign of strength in the industry, and it doesn't bother him at all. Uh, I had a similar uh, point of view when I was talking to the head of E.ON's microgeneration unit just recently, on the flip side of that, I've also been talking to some fund managers in the City of London, and they say they're really not going in any, anywhere near renewables because of the uncertainty here. We've also got the news from Vestas, the wind turbine maker, that they would build a new type of wind turbine in Europe, but they really need certainty from governments before they begin to ramp up production on that. So we've got two differing points of view on that one. Um, and who have we got coming up in terms of Q&A this week? We've got Keith Parker. He's the uh, chief executive of the UK Nuclear Industry Association. So he'll be answering all questions nuclear related, particularly obviously in the wake of Fukushima and trying to put some visibility to those issues. Next week, we are going to talk about Libya, uh, Middle East and North Africa and particularly oil. We have Amrita Sen, Barcaps oil analyst with us to talk about those issues. So any reader who wants to ask a question should email energysource at ft.com. Thanks very much, Kieran. If you'd like to have your say, as Kieran just said, log on and post a comment on Energy Source. Thank you. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Javi Blas and Kieran Stacey in the studio, Jonathan Sobel in Tokyo, and Gerrit Wiesmann in Berlin. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.